What a blessing it is to be sharing with you today, God's Word, beautiful crowd, beautiful people. It's a gift that um, I'm allowed to share to you, with you today, this portion of Scripture. Uh, there's some, some sheet notes if you want to use them. I encourage you to take notes, write on your Bibles. We're not like other groups that don't like them, their, their books to, to be written of. Like beautiful, beautiful Bibles are highlighted Bibles and, you know, worn out Bibles. Let's, um, let's open in prayer and then we'll, we'll deep and we'll get to our text. Dear Lord in heaven, we pray that today your name will be glorified in, in this time and this place. We pray that your word will pierce our hearts that your spirit will convince us and move us to repentance when needed, to worship when deserved. Jesus, we pray for your glory to be displayed, for your name to be lifted on high. In your name we pray. Amen. So we've been busy with, uh, with this series of the gospel according to Matthew, and in particularly focused now the last couple of weeks on on the Sermon of the Mount, and it's been really nice to, to, to go through this book. Um, I think it, is, it has been a, a great blessing to hear Matt and, and, and Alon preaching through it. I think it's been a blessing also to see how, how they're growing as, as, as preachers and, and, and communicators of God's Word. So, like, uh, I've been really enjoying to, to be under the, uh, the preaching and, and teaching of, of them. Today we're focusing... On the portion of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34, it's a, it's a lengthy portion, but it's a good one, and, and a bit of a reminder so we can, we can keep the context present while we go through the sermon. The Sermon of the Mount has been nicknamed the blueprint of the Christian life. In his words, our Lord Jesus is masterfully proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, the role of the king, and how his subjects owe him a life of devotion and righteousness, all this filled with everyday life applications. So the Sermon of the Mount keeps bringing forth the central idea that Jesus is king and that the citizens of the kingdom or that the citizenship of the kingdom is loaded with blessings, privileges, and responsibilities. Jesus has been confronting different aspects of, of the life and religion of his time. He uses common examples and analogies to make his message um, loud and clear. But at the same time, he's not backing from confronting the hypocrisy, wickedness, and sinful behavior of those who claim to be into the kingdom but are nothing less than enemies of the king and everything that he represents. In chapter 6, we see that this is an important aspect where Jesus is focused and the hypocrisy of the religious zealots of his time. In a very blunt and direct way, Jesus is exposing the hidden agenda of the people that practice a man-driven righteousness. And you see that this is an essential thing in the whole exposition of the sermon. There is kingdom-driven righteousness and man-made righteousness, or as scriptures call it, self-righteousness. In fact, that's how the chapter starts in verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen. 
And at the end of chapter 6, in verse 33, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And as we saw last week in the first half of the chapter six of chapter six, man-made righteousness is not in the kingdom business. It's only focused in the self. It's all about the self. It's about me, my good works, my good deeds, my pseudo spiritual filled life. Look at me, look how I pray, look how I, I fast, see how big my offerings are, how much I give to those in need. It's the self-righteousness where, the, where he asked the question, the self-righteous asked the question, have you seen me? But the kingdom-driven righteousness, kingdom-driven righteousness is focused on the king. And we are an instrument that brings God the glory that he only deserves. A heart that shouts, look, but not to the self. Look to the king. Look to the ruler of all. So this is really the thread that we must follow through while we go and exploring the Sermon of the Mount. Remember that at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the practice of a kingdom-driven righteousness has its primarily goal. And that is to bring glory to God. And just to be sure that we all are on the same page, I, 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 do not, I do not want to sound condescending or anything like that, but I, I just want to define briefly what, what do we mean when we talk about righteousness. Because it's, it's, it's one of those things, if, if, if I go and ask what is righteousness, I might get a couple of different definitions. So I, I, I want to give one, and it's a general one, it's not like the most thorough one, but it will serve good today. Righteousness can also mean justice, justness, or divine holiness. So in the broadest sense, righteousness can be defined as the condition of being acceptable to God as made possible by God. So this word is an echo of the call from God to be holy as He is holy. And that is the source of righteousness, the standard for righteousness, set by God and that it is enabled by God. So that is why in the Beatitudes, the opening statement reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit knows that it doesn't have enough funds to pay its entrance to the kingdom. The poor knows that there is no way and that he can atone for himself. He humbly submits to the grace and mercy of the king. And in this recognition, he is met with the riches of heaven. With immeasurable wealth that the king, that the saving Messiah can offer. A righteousness, not of our own, but one gifted from above. So in other words, we know 
we now know a more excellent way of living, a more excellent way to enjoy the abundance of life where we can, we can do everything now for the glory of God. And just to remember, the Lord Jesus himself has used the righteousness of the Pharisees as an example in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But what Jesus is saying is look at these people. Since they want to be looked, look at them. Look at what they do. Hear what they say. You think that they are the righteous ones? You think that they are, are good? You think that they deserve the keys to the kingdom? But Jesus himself says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. <clears throat> what we see in this chapter is Jesus dissecting the religious fakeness of the Pharisees. It is really a total exposure of their hearts and motives. How their life, the practice of their religion, is no more than the all pursuit of satisfaction through the means of this world. They have no care, they have no love for the kingdom or the king. And Jesus is saying, it shows. It tells. You can see it. Because they don't pursue righteousness. What they pursue are other desires of their wicked hearts, their, their self-righteousness, and the stink of their deeds. So Jesus is calling them out and says to his audience and to the real subjects of, of the kingdom, you must not be like the hypocrites. You must not be like the hypocrites. Beware. Beware of those who are only Christians when someone's around. Beware of those who follow their desires and follow their own hearts. The problem with the Pharisees was deep hidden from plain sight. But remember, dear ones, a warning for us as well. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks of the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. Jesus has exposed the anatomy of the hypocrites. It is pulling from deep within the rotten hearts and displaying so that everyone sees that they are not within the kingdom. But in fact, they are enemies of the king. And thieves of the glory that rightfully belongs only to God. So the Pharisees were not, on, were not only focused on practicing their righteousness as a performance in front of men. But they were also focused in collecting or hoarding what they believed to be the manifestation of God's favor upon them. So this idea was rooted in the assumption that if you are blessed in the material aspect, if you have stuff, if you are rich, that serves as an undisputable evidence of God being pleased with you. And that sounds familiar. And that is because this is not new. Now think about the friends of Job. Come on, Job. What do you do? 
Confess, repent. You must have done something because God wouldn't let you go through this unless you did something. In the Pharisee's mind, God rewards with material goods the practice, the work that one does. And the opposite, when he is displeased with you. That's on the Pharisee's mind. Jesus uses examples out of their societal context, fabrics, coins, accumulating things for the sake of just having them. Again, it's just another proclamation of the worldly man. Look what I have. Or in other words, look how much God has rewarded me for my righteousness. Jesus warns them, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And this treasure hunting approach to life and righteousness by the Pharisees had only one purpose. To satisfy themselves. So the accumulation of these material treasures for the sake of the self is no more than plain idolatry. It is a thievery occupation that is said to steal God's glory and a form of adultery of which we have to be careful ourselves. Jesus points at them. Look at them. What is their focus? What is that they desire the most? What is their driven motive? Why they do all they do? Jesus is not saying by this that if we put our treasures in the right place, our hearts will be pointing in the right direction. He's saying that our treasure points to where our hearts are already. Jesus continues his confrontation by these words, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This analogy of the eye reflects that what should be the focus of a kingdom-driven individual. The hypocrite lives in the empty amazement of its earthly treasures. But on contrast, the kingdom citizen has a clear and determined devotion. So here the use of the eye is an analogy for heart. Through our spiritual eye, meaning the heart, we illuminate our soul. This is how we know where we are going and if our affections are directed in the right path, in the right direction. We know that the lack of light makes things difficult. But we, know, we all know how much it hurts when on that midnight snack trip to the kitchen, you kick the corner of the bench with a little toe. So you know that, I'm not speaking from experience, eh? I don't, I don't do that anymore. We, we need to keep our eye, our focus on the things that won't be an obstacle for our lives. We need to ask ourselves, how does it look when we show what we are focused on? What are you looking at? Are you focused on the gifts? Or is your eye fixed on the giver? We owe the king reverence and obedience. And have you noticed, I don't know if you have noticed, but one of the things that really caught my attention was that the imperative tone of the Sermon of the Mount. 
Do not, as repeated several times through the whole sermon, do not, instead do, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. When the king speaks, we must obey. It's not an invitation for an audience with him in his court. This is a commandment, not, again, an advice. It's something that we ought to obey. It's something that we ought to do. Why? Because God said so. Because the kingdom said it. But this is not coming from a place of, of tyranny or uh, uh, in a dictatorial way. Telling what you can and cannot do. It, it, it is an aspect. It is, a, it is the loving care of the king that commands us. Why would you hoard things that will fade away? Why do you deem a necessity the accumulation of things that rot and rust, things that get lost, things that get stolen? This treasure-hunting mentality creates action. It generates movement. What we desire is shown by, we, by what we pursue, but by what we are focused on. So we ask the question, what are these heavenly treasures then? And I'm going to give you a list of the ones that we can find only in what we have seen already of the Sermon of the Mount in, in, in Matthew. And if you have a pen, mark it down. Because it, there's a lot. Humbleness and a pure heart. Chapter 5, verses 5 to 8. Righteousness is one of our treasures. Verse 6 of, of chapter 5. Mercy. Verse 7, peace, verse 9, being salt and light of the world. Matthew 5, 13, God's commands, the commands of, of God, the, the, the commandments of God are our treasure as well. Resisting anger, 5, 22, being, a faith, being faithful to your spouse. Matthew um, 5, chapter, um, verses 28 and 32, keeping your word, verse 37, Turning the other cheek, verse 39, providing for physical needs, verses 40 to 44, loving your enemies, prayer, Matthew 6, verses 5 and 13, practicing forgiveness, verses, verse 12, and the list will only get longer and longer as you go through this sermon, as you go through Scripture. So there are plenty of treasures to pursue. There are plenty of things to accumulate. But you see that the kingdom-driven mentality will differ from this worldly, earthly mentality. And we can add another question for us. I know what they are, but where can I find them? And this is one of the things that I love about the Sermon of the Mount. How it is simplicity exposes big, deep truths. Because we can see that these treasures are no more than a declaration of the character and the heart of our Lord Jesus himself. He is the manifestation of the treasures in heaven. And him are encompassed all the treasures of heaven. That's why verse 20 of chapter 6 expresses treasures. But then in verse 21 uses treasure from the plural from plural to singular and Jesus are all the treasures of heaven in him should our eye our heart be focused on 
See how it connects. We are focused on Jesus, the light. We are focused on him, and we make our walk easy. We fix our eyes on him, and we make our walk easy. We fix our eye, our heart on him, and our soul gets better, gets healthier. We do not live in a spiritual darkness. On the contrary, we live in the light that came to defeat the darkness. And this is what Apostle Peter says in his letter. I'm just paraphrasing here, but he says, But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. The light himself that came says to us, gaze upon me. And in me you will find all of heaven's treasures. That is just beautiful. So this is the kingdom of heaven, my dears. The, the kingdom of a king that says, I take from you. But not like the kings of the world. He doesn't take riches for himself. What does, what does Jesus take from us? Your rotten coins. Your moth-eaten robes. And what he gives? Eternal, lasting treasures to enjoy forever. He hands to you himself. At the end of this portion, we, we read, No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus continued to expand the idea by using contrast. <clears throat> you cannot have treasures on earth and in heaven. You cannot be in the dark and in the light. You cannot serve both money and God. So when Jesus uses the word master, the word is in the sense of one who owns. The master is the one who has purchased. The master owns something that he has paid for. A servant, or without sugarcoating it, a slave is under the absolute control of its master. The idea behind this is a slave owes to its master absolute devotion, service, and obedience. Our fidelity towards our master must be undisputed. We cannot go around saying that we are of the Lord, that he is our master, and that he has purchased our lives, and then go around living our lives in whichever way we want. The supreme authority over your heart will be on the king or on money. One will command you to walk by faith, and the other one will demand of you to walk by sight. You see the difference? One will tell you to walk by faith. The other one will demand from you that you walk by sight. If you have your Bibles in there, you can join me as I read on the book of Romans, the, the letter from, to Romans, chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses um, 16 to 22. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 to 22. Do you not know that when you go 
on presenting yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For, you as, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you having from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those, those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and slave to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end, eternal life. Our eye must be fixed on our Lord. Our hearts should only long for Him alone. In the last portion of chapter 6, we see that the aim changes. And in the first part, Jesus talked about those who are busy getting, accumulating, those who have plenty but want more. And in this section of the Sermon of the Mount, he is speaking directly to those who are on the other side of the earthly treasures spectrum. Jesus is speaking to those who are rich and trusting the resources for security, assurance, and peace. And also now to those who are poor and might doubt of God's provision and care. Both groups have their spiritual needs. Both groups have their spiritual struggles. None of them are, by the definition of the standard of the kingdom, right. Therefore, says the Lord, do not be anxious, worried, preoccupied, or fearful. Jesus is pointing at the problem quite explicitly here. Our tendency to get anxious is a problem of focus. We are looking through the, long, through the wrong lens. So we worry because we think that something can give us assurance, safety, or security. We, we give power to little things over our life, over our hearts. If I get this job, I'll be fine. If my house is this big, I'll be, it'll be okay. If my kids go to this school, they'll have a future. If my spouse act, acts in this way, I'll be happy. This car is what I need. Holidays in this place will give that much-needed reset. And the list just goes on and on and on. And the Lord says that anxiety, this worrisome attitude, is a Gentile occupation. It's not a kingdom practice. Beloved, God is not against us having things. We, we are not like the, the, the Catholic priest that will leave everything and, and go and live in the mountains. That's, that's not what God is demanding from us. God is not against us having things, but he will not be pleased when those things end up possessing us. The Lutheran German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, 
The more things we have, the more our things seems to have us. We start to organize our lives around them and spend money to maintain them. Our worries and anxieties, our fears and preoccupations are sometimes the lie in our dashboard that informs us that there is something wrong. The signals light up to call our attention to our focus. They are telling us to stop and to check what the problem is. And you know, anxiety can be a serious thing. It can, it can lead even to physical ailments that, like stomach ulcers. It can drain out our, our, our energy and has been even linked to heart diseases. So when we give in and fall into anxiety, we become incapable of dealing with the different circumstances of life and it will become an obstacle to assume, to assume our responsibilities and service to our king. So we need to say it like it is. Our worries, our anxiety, and most of the time, 98.9% of the time, are a manifestation of our sinful nature. Anxiety steals the hope for tomorrow and blocks the view so we, don't say, we can't see a clear path. It becomes increasingly difficult to take steps but our Lord is pointing things out because as he reassures us that our heavenly father knows all of our needs. He also knows that we will have to deal with the uncertainty of life. We tend to focus on what we don't have and think that if we do, we might just be fine. If we get that, we might just be fine. But the Lord is calling us to consider the things we do have or more precisely, in whom we have, to whom we belong. And the first thing on the list is that we have a king that cares, that provides, that is just and righteous. A king that knows what it is to go through life without having everything. So what do we do then? Because it's easy to come and say, like, don't be anxious. But so what do we do then? Another word for anxiety that I usually use is preoccupation. And it's very telling. In this state, we are preoccupied. We are not occupied. We, we are not doing what we should. The Apostle Paul's, Paul says in his letter to the church in Philippi, um, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, I don't want you to think that just because you pray, your anxiety is it's, it's out, it's, it's gone. We, we, don't, we don't believe in mantras. <laughs> We don't just repeat something until something happens. That's not how it works. For this, for this, we need an external source of strength to face the adversity. We need the help of our king to diagnose our hearts and identify the roots of anxiety. And dealing with anxiety can sometimes be a process that can be for some short or for others quite long. 
but should always be faced with the certainty that the goal is our benefit and the glory of our God. So the Apostle Peter now gives us some indications as well on how we can face these moments of anxiety. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. That he may exalt you at the proper time. Which time? His time. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I'm going to say that again. Because he cares for you. He cares for us. And he really, truly does. So that is, this, is, this is a beautiful declaration. When we go to the Lord in humbleness, admitting that we are fearful and anxious, when we recognize that we are failing to trust in God and His goodness, when we cry from the depths of our soul that we need His steadfastness, we can cast our anxieties upon Him. We see that this battle is fought in dependence of the strength, in the strength of the king, and that the results are bound to his ability to take this burden from us, and we know that he can take it from us. Prayer help us to switch our focus from the circumstance back to the king. Are you worried about what would you eat? Are you anxious about having enough money to pay the bills? Are the things of this world clinging to your heart and dragging you down? Are you worried about tomorrow? School for the kids, holidays, car, house, parenting, marriage, whatever, whatever that is. You need, you need to take the hint and pray. Don't ignore the lights in the dashboard. Don't cover them with tape and the naive hope of out of sight, out of mind. Deal with it. Do something. Take them to the Lord in prayer. One of my favorite hymns. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what a peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All this, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Two more things before I'm done. Maybe three. John Chrysostom, father of the early church, he said, We are only temporary guests on earth. We recognize that our houses in which we live serve only as hostels on the road to eternal life. We do not seek peace or security from the material walls around us or the roof above our heads. Rather, we want to surround ourselves with a wall of divine grace and we look upward to heaven as a roof. And the furniture of our lives should be good works performed in a spirit of love. You know what the beauty of all this is? Even if 
even if we are of little faith. The Lord, our King, our Jesus, He doesn't give up on us. In tenderness, in patience, He chases us, He calls us, and He comes to meet us with eternal, precious, glorious grace. Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26. Chapter, um, chapter 26, verses 1 to 5. In that day, the song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation and walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it, cast it to the dust. Let us pray. Dear Lord, our King, our Redeemer, help us to trust in you. Make us hold fast to the truth that in uncertain times you are our stronghold. Lord, you speak to us through the birds and the sky and the flowers in the field. That you have not forsaken us, that you know us. And that we don't need to fear. Remind us, O oh Lord of your power and authority, that you are with us in what it is to come and that you know each one of our needs. We pray that we might live for your kingdom, that we long only for the treasures in heaven, that our deepest desire is the treasure of heaven. You and you alone, O oh Lord, our God. In the name of the Son, we glorify you, Lord. We glorify your name, Yahweh. Amen.